Good morning, church. Let me pray as we continue in worship. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have uh, to know you and to know you more. Lord, we thank you for the invitation that you give to every person in this room. For those who seek you, Lord, you promise that they will find you when they seek you with all of their heart. We have but only begun to taste and see of your goodness, God. We have but only begun to understand, receive, and rest in your grace. We have but only begun to experience the powerful things that you desire to do for all who hope in you. We have but only begun, Lord, to realize the truth the hope of your promises. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes that we might see, that you would open our hearts that we might behold, that you would open our faith that we might trust. Lord, we want to know you more. We thank you for your word that is not ink on a page, but life that can speak into our hearts as you speak. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that is present with us right now and powerful to speak and to work and to lead and to minister, to show us yourself. So we invite you, Lord. We seek you, desiring to know you more. We thank you that at this moment, for all who rest in your grace, Lord, we are right with you, not on the basis of what we have done or will ever do, but on the basis of what you have done for us. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray, amen. Well, good morning, church. It's great to see you this morning. I'm Barrett, one of the pastors here, and if you've got your Bible, I would encourage you to get it open to the Gospel of Matthew this morning. I don't know who's excited in the room about returning to Matthew. Whoop, whoop. Um, I know that I am thrilled, and I am thankful that you are here with us. We are so thankful for your presence with us, and um, just pray more than anything else today that you would have the opportunity to really know and experience God, his love for you, and also our love for you as a church family. Um, we are continuing this morning our study of Matthew in our series called Jesus Messiah. And we have been in this series throughout the fall. We typically go through books of the Bible. We've taken a brief interlude for our Christmas season and our beginning of the year. And now we're diving back in. So if you've got your guides, and I hope you do, and if you don't have a guide, it's okay. There's no shame. I just ask that you find some way to take notes. I believe our guides are helpful because it allows you to keep uh, the entire study of Matthew one place. Often when we are discipling one-on-one -on -one or when we're going overseas and teaching and training, we, we end up finding ourselves going back to that one place that we can have a comprehensive study of these books of the Bible so that we can not just be hearers of God's Word, but also ones who, who really live in light of God's Word and also desire to fulfill Jesus' request of us, which is that we make disciples, we teach others what He has taught us. And so, if you've got your guides or something to write notes with, I would encourage you to, to begin to take notes. 
Um, this morning, we are going to be talking together um, about this theme, Restoring Lives, the Power of the Messiah. Restoring Lives, the Power of the Messiah. We've been talking about Jesus as our Messiah. Messiah means the promised one, the anointed one, the Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title that's given to him because he is the fulfillment of all of God's promises that there would come one who would fully and finally bring us back to God, which we so desperately need. One who would come to bring us back to God. And Jesus, as he arrives, is the fulfillment of all of God's promise. Even Jesus himself, if you remember after the resurrection, can you imagine Luke, uh, the physician, records this in his gospel in chapter 23 and 24. Uh, he shows up to some people who are walking on the road to Emmaus, and you remember he begins to explain, the Bible says, the scriptures from Moses all the way through the prophets, and he begins to help them understand that it was all about him. And ultimately, as Jesus arrives on the scene, it is exactly what we find all of creation, all of God's revelation is meant to, to lead us to understand that our life is about Him. And I pray that you're growing to understand that more and more. Well, Matthew, in the early part of the book, just as a recap, you remember, he introduces us to the person of Jesus. He wants us to have confidence that Jesus truly is the Messiah. And then Matthew um, records probably the most famous sermon, and we've studied that all throughout the fall of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. And what we've been doing in these early chapters of Matthew up to this point is we've been looking at Jesus' credentials, truly, the confidence that we can have that he truly is the promised one, the one who, if you put all your hope in him, he can fully and finally bring you back to God forever. And then as he begins to open his discourse, open his heart to, to his disciples and to us, we begin to understand what it looks like to really live in light of who he is, to live a life of trust and obedience to him. Well, today we turn the corner in chapter 8, and we are going to be looking at the demonstration of Jesus' power in many people's lives and his power in our life. I want to go ahead and tell you kind of the basic outline of the day, and for those um, who are helping me with media this morning, I'm going to basically skip over reading the entire chapter's I'm going to go through them piece by piece, um, but I want to go ahead and give you the basic outline of Matthew chapter 8 and 9. Some of you might look at this and you go, wow, we are studying a lot of scripture this morning, and you are right, which I said, are y'all ready? Um, that's why I said that. But the reason is because I do believe Matthew is very intentional, like many of the gospel writers, and how he structures his book. And I do believe that there's a lot of intentionality in Matthew's structure, and there's a lot of cohesiveness and theme between chapters 8 and 9. Basically, in these two chapters, what we find is basically 10 miracles, okay? There are 10 miracles that Matthew groups together in these two chapters. Now, they're grouped in, there's three miracles, and then there's a break, and there's three miracles, there's a break, and then there's four miracles. And in between these sections of miracles, there are discipleship moments that Jesus has with his disciples. There's three of those total. But all of these things, Matthew groups together to, to help you understand something about Jesus that you really need to understand. 
And I want to go ahead and reflect that in our core truth this morning. Because I believe it's exactly what Matthew is trying to help us understand about Jesus. And it's this. Jesus, by God's great power, has total authority over all of creation. And this, Jesus, by God's great grace, uses his power to bring complete restoration in the lives of broken sinners who completely trust in him. Amen. Hope you'll write it down if you're not doing so already. The theme of these two chapters, these ten miracles, these three discipleship moments is this. For you, in a personal way, to really get something about Jesus. In your heart of hearts, to really understand and believe and receive and live in light of this. That Jesus, by God's great power, has been given total authority over all creation. And this, that Jesus by God's great grace, uses his power to bring complete restoration in the lives of broken sinners who completely trust in him. I want to go ahead and give you the basic outline of the book. I'm going to put it on the screen. Please don't write it all down at once because that, that way you can kind of, because we'll go back through this. We're going to go through this today. I have uh, taken this outline largely from one of my good family friends and also a dear friend of Chrysidus. Chrysidus, our missionary partner, is here this morning. Can you all give him a hand? We are so glad, Chrysidus, that you are here. Chrysidus arrived from India just this week, and we are so grateful that you're here. Uh, one of my, our, our good family friends when I was growing up as a young child was a man named Warren Wearsby. He's a good brother of Chrysidus. He recently just died, and we've been grieving his uh, his death, although it's his gain, our loss, but he is a, a wonderful uh, pastor and a wonderful uh, writer as it relates to helping men like me be a better student of God's Word, and he provides such a simple outline for this. It's just an outline of the text, but largely I just basically reflecting uh, this, simple, this simple outline for you here on the screen. But basically what we see here in the yellow are these three groups of miracles, we see Jesus' powerful grace and his restoration to the outcast. We see a discipleship moment about the priority, priority of the kingdom. Then secondly, we see in another set of miracles, Jesus' powerful peace, his restoration to the disturbed. And then in another discipleship moment, we see that he came to give mercy, not to receive sacrifice. And then third, in another set of miracles, we see Jesus' powerful healing, his restoration to the broken. And then in another discipleship moment, we see his heart for the harvest. So I want to walk through these things together. This is the basic structure of the gospel of Matthew, God's word to us. And I want to start this morning by looking at this first set of miracles, which we are calling a demonstration of Jesus' powerful grace, his restoration 
to outcasts. If you look at your Bibles, Matthew chapter 8, I'm going to start reading in verse 1, and I'll read through verse 17. The Word of God says this, Now when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus, Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go. Show yourself to the priest and, and, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. And when he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him and appealed to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. But, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he does it. He comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and he said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she rose, and she began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits of the word, and he healed all of those who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses, and he bore our diseases. This is Jesus. <laughs> Jesus by God's great power, having all authority over all creation, and by God's great grace, using his authority to completely restore the lives of broken sinners who completely trust in him. In this first category, we see the ministry of Jesus' power in a restorative way. And we see it primarily in his ministry to outcasts. And all three of these people... Um, so if you look at the Bible, the first person that comes is 
Matthew records here is the leper. There's basically three, okay? We've got cleansing the leper, we've got the centurion servant who's healed, and then we have Peter's mother-in-law who is healed. And in all three of these, Jesus is demonstrating his power to restore. But if you think about the situation of these people, He's also demonstrating his power, not just to restore in general way, but to restore those who have been outcast. Many Jewish people, especially the Pharisees, would start their morning, oh God, I give thanks that I am a man and not a woman, a Jew and not a Gentile, a free and not a slave. In this society, and in some ways it's not probably much different than things that we see in our society today, There was so much brokenness, even among the community. Community that lived in close proximity. A leper that Jesus encounters is eaten up with a disease of his skin that is highly contagious. And by the ceremonial instructions found in the Old Testament, lepers were completely ostracized from others because of their condition. When a leper would enter into a space, they were forced by law to cry out, unclean, unclean, unclean. Kind of like a scarlet letter constantly having to announce to others their uncleanness. And you can imagine in a room like this, similar to probably what the stereotype was about AIDS even not too long ago in the world, where people who heard unclean, the room would clear and people move away from such a person with leprosy. And yet Jesus the Son of God, the Savior, showing the heart of God, showing the desires of God, showing the fulfillment of the promise of God. As he hears one cry out, I am unclean, he doesn't move away from him, but rather he moves toward him. And he moves toward him for the opportunity to show him grace and to offer him restoration. Can you imagine what it would have been like for someone to touch this man again, maybe for the first time and who knows how long? For someone to not move away but to move toward. This is the grace and the power of Jesus. Secondly, he comes encounter with the centurion as he gets into Capernaum. Centurion was an officer who had authority over a hundred men in a Roman army. He was a professional soldier. And by his assignment in Rome, we know he's a non-Jew. He's a Gentile. 
And yet, Jesus is a Jew. And these two groups of people don't get along. For a Jew to associate with a Gentile would be for a Jew to defile himself, to bring shame on their community. And yet, as Jesus walks into Capernaum, this man comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, I don't know where else to go. My servant is, being, is lying paralyzed at home. And Jesus, instead of pushing him off, instead of making those classifications like the rest of his community did, he offers himself in grace. And he says, I, I will. I will come and I will heal him. In the centurion, only two times does Jesus marvel at faith, at someone's faith in the scriptures. And this is one of them. And the centurion says, you don't even have to come. I understand authority. I understand power. See, I'm in a system of authority. I'm under authority. And I have men under my authority. And I know when you're dealing with power that all it takes is a word. And those under you will, will obey. I understand it. I understand you, Jesus, have all power. All it takes is a word, Jesus, and I believe that whatever you command will obey. And Jesus marvels at his faith. He says, you, you've got more faith even than the sons of Israel. And then in verse 13 there, he's, Heals, go, let it be done. And that moment, the servant was healed. At that very moment. The Lord heals. The Lord gives grace, even to those who believe they're too far off for it. And then Peter's mother-in-law. When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with fever. I got the flu a few weeks ago. Anybody ever had the flu? It stinks. I got quarantined in my own house. Michelle would not even speak to me hardly. She said, I don't want it. Don't talk to me. Don't even look at me. She didn't really say this. I'm kind of exaggerating a little bit. But I felt like I had the plague. Anybody ever felt like that? And literally you get quarantined among your own friends or your own family, and you're just like, well, dang, this sucks. <laughs> And there's some good reasons for that. But again, the wonder of the person and the power of Jesus, that when someone is that sick, Jesus doesn't move away from them like the others, but he moves toward them because he knows that by moving toward you, he can give you grace to help in your time of need. He is powerful to bring change in your heart, to bring change in your life, to bring change in your circumstance. All authority is his. He has all power, and he yields it in his grace, moving toward broken people. Aren't you thankful? Moving toward people 
who others have cast off because of their problems. Moving toward people who have isolated themselves because they think, I, I'm so unworthy, I can't be around anybody, I could never receive restoration. Jesus moves toward you when you are far off. Like I said, a Pharisee would pray in the morning, oh God, I thank you that I'm not that sick. Oh God, I thank you that I'm not a Gentile. Oh God, I thank you that I am not a woman, the second class citizens in society. And Jesus blows it all up and says, wait a second, that is not reflective of the heart of God. The heart of God looks at the broken and he doesn't move away from them, he moves toward them. Looks at the Gentile who is far off and he doesn't move away, he moves toward. Looks at the second class and doesn't see them as second class, sees them as as lovable, valuable, worthy of his healing touch. Jesus, Jesus, with his power, yields his power for an experience of grace. Pretty amazing, right? He moves into this discipleship moment. And in verse 18, he says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds gather around him, because what happened with this woman, word begins to spread. People are like, wait a second, um, there's somebody in my time of sickness, in my time of need, who, who, who's not going to just isolate me, move away from me, he's going to move toward me and bring healing in my life, and crowds been coming as soon as he heals Peter's mother-in-law. Crowds begin gathering around in fulfillment of what The prophet spoke that here's one who would come, Messiah would come to take on our illnesses, to bear our diseases. And as the crowds come around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. And a scribe comes up to him and he says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, do you know what you're committing to? And the guy, another one of his disciples, said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. In other words, make your priority the kingdom of God. Do you really know what it looks like to know me as Savior and Lord? To follow me wholeheartedly. And to prioritize spiritual things over temporal things. Do you really know what I am about? I have come to seek and to save the lost. I am not about comfort. I am not about convenience. I am about doing the will of God. And that will cost everything. But for those who understand what is real in this world. For those who yearn to experience me, come, come and follow me. He moves into the second set of miracles. And in this set, basically, we see on display the powerful peace of Jesus. And we see his power at work restoring those who are disturbed. In verses 23 of chapter 8, all the way through verse 8 of chapter 9, we'll read... And it says, and when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, 
there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and they woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And then he arose and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? When he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of tombs and so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they, they told everything, especially what happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all of the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. And getting into a boat, he crossed over, and he came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise and walk. But so that you know, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and he went home. When the great crowds saw him, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority. Amen. Three different miracles. Again, Matthew recording. All of them showing us that Jesus, by God's great power, has been given authority over all of creation and by God's great grace is using his authority to bring complete restoration in the lives of those broken, sinful lives of those who completely trust in him. Here we see his restoration in ways that is bringing peace, powerful peace, to people who are disturbed. In the first scene, we see the disciples in a boat in the Sea of Galilee. Jesus has set out in a certain direction. And where do we know he's going? We know he's going to show his power in an additional way through this healing of the man possessed with demons. But in route on the Sea of Galilee, which is like 13 miles long, about eight miles wide, it's known for really terrible storms that 
come up quite quickly. Jesus is asleep in the boat. He's resting. Jesus knows it's coming. Jesus obviously could have prevented it. However, there are times in our lives, I was talking about this with Christmas just a few days ago, there are times in our lives where God permits trials, where we suffer under God's permission so that we might be tested. And so ultimately, we might know more of him. And these disciples are caught up in something, a circumstance, and some of you might relate to it, a circumstance that feels like it is swirling out of control, and you yourself have no control over it. Anybody ever been there? And they all freak out. And then they get frustrated at Jesus going, Jesus, why are you sleeping? Where are you right now? And Jesus says, wait, wait, wait. Don't you know I'm right here? I'm right here with you. Is that not enough? I'm paraphrasing here. But is that not enough? Oh, why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith, do you not know who is with you in the storm? It's me, and by God's great power, I've been given all authority over all creation, and by God's great grace, I have committed to use my power for your good. Oh, you have little faith, can't you trust me? In the midst of your circumstance that is out of control, don't fear, don't be disturbed. Let me offer to you, if you'll receive it, my powerful peace. And he's with He rises up, it says in verse 26, and he rebukes the winds and the sea. And with a word, a circumstance completely changes. Do you believe Jesus has that kind of power? Then when he is with you, when he is with you, won't you trust him and allow him to give you his powerful peace. What sort of man is this that even wins and see obey him? Oh, let me tell you what sort of man. This is not any man. This is God, the Son of God. And he is wonderful. The second miracle that we see is as Jesus gets to the place that he's going, we see Not only does Jesus bring peace in a storm, but we also see that Jesus brings peace in the midst of a community. We see men who are literally, it says in verse 28, demon-possessed. And they're coming out of the tombs. And they're so fierce that no one can pass their way. Listen, what does Satan do for people? When you turn your heart and life over to sin... What does sin do? What does the control of the enemy do? It robs you of sanity. It robs you of self-control. It will fill you with fear. It will steal your joy. It will separate you from friends and family. And you will carry a constant sense of guilt and shame and condemnation. What what does society do for people who are controlled by sin and Satan? Often, we try to restrain people. We will isolate people. 
We will threaten people. We will shout at people to control their behavior. But guess what? We cannot change other people. Only Jesus can change a person's heart and life. Only Jesus can restore one who is in bondage and battle with sin and Satan himself. But this is Jesus. And as Jesus arrives on the scene, he comes to them. Grace, power, peace, and he delivers them by a by the power of his word, he says, go. And he restores them. And as he restores them, Jesus sends them home to be a witness that truly there is one, if you trust him, who in the midst of being overcome, overwhelmed, so disturbed, so embattled, so much in bondage, there is one who can set you free. In a powerful way, he can restore peace, even with a single word. Do you believe it, friends? Do you trust him? In areas of circumstance where you think, feel like things are swirling, do you trust him? In areas of bondage, are you experiencing his freedom? And the third miracle we see here is the miracle of the paralytic in chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. As he's getting back into the boat after freeing these men, he crosses over back to his own city, and it says he's, there's some guys that start bringing up a guy who is paralyzed, a guy who can't even make his way to Jesus, has friends who know where this man can be restored. And by faith and courage and great sacrifice of themselves, they are carrying their friend to Jesus. And oh, for more people who would be that kind of friend for others in our lives, amen, to carry, to know that broken people need to make their way to Jesus if we would be friends to just take them. I thank God for these men. They're bringing this paralyzed man into the presence of Jesus. And so interestingly, when Jesus sees their faith, it says in verse 2, he says to the paralytic, take heart, my son. Your what? Your sins are forgiven. And everybody in the room is going, uh, wait a second. We brought this guy here because he can't walk. <laughs> the Pharisees in the room are going, wait a second, did he just say he could forgive sins? Is he equating himself to God? Is he blaspheming? And Jesus knows what everybody in the room is thinking. He says, what do you think is easier for me to say your sins are forgiven or for me to say get up and walk but so that you know that all authority has been given to me over all creation, both spiritual and physical. I say to you, get up and walk. And the man, it says, rose, verse 7. And the crowd is all standing there with their mouths open, it says in verse 8. And they were glorifying God because they were recognizing, we have never, ever known one who has this kind of power over all and who is using it to bring restoration to broken sinners like me.
Jesus is showing us that even more important than a cry for healing in your body is a cry for healing in your soul. What good would it be for God to work a miracle in your temporal situation if you have never experienced the greatest miracle, which is newness of life in your heart? What good would it be for you to die with a healed body but not a healed soul? Our greatest need is not peace in our circumstances. Our greatest need is peace with God. And you cannot experience the peace of God if you have never experienced peace with God. Jesus' primary concern for this man and his primary concern for you is whether or not you have ever come to a place in your life where you have experienced peace with God. Namely, an honest confession of your brokenness and need, your sin. You're humbling yourself before God and calling out to Him and you're receiving of true forgiveness. Not forgiveness that you can give yourself, but forgiveness that only God Himself can give you. That He's willing to give you because of what He's done for you in His life, death, and resurrection. And after receiving forgiveness of sins, crying out to God for a new heart, heart of love for Him, a, a, a new birth has to happen. And Jesus, in this miracle, is showing us the priority of peace with God. But he's also showing us that in this need for peace, he has the authority and he also has the grace to offer it for all who trust him completely. Amen? Jesus is powerful and he uses his powerful to restore those who are broken. Last but not least, there's a discipleship discourse. I need to mention this. After this section, this second section of miracles, there's a discipleship moment where Jesus teaches us that he came for mercy and not for sacrifice. He says in verse 12, those who are well have no need of a physician. This is after the accusation of why is this Jesus if he's God hanging out with such rotten people? Tax collectors and sinners, why is he hanging out with the scum, with the sinners, with the broken, with the dirty, with the outcast? And Jesus responds, don't you know, verse 12, but he heard, when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I have come desiring mercy, not sacrifice. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And by the way, there are no one righteous. No, not one. But what he's saying is, I haven't come for people who think they don't need God. I've come for people who recognize they desperately need God. I haven't come for people who think by what they do for God that God is going to be pleased with them. No, no, no. I have not come for those kind of people because that's not the way it works. I have come for people who realize, who come to a point of desperation, and all they have is a plea for mercy. And when people come to that point, I offer mercy. I haven't come for the righteous. I've come for sinners. And if you're here in the room today, 
and you recognize your brokenness, you recognize your need, your inability apart from a Savior, you are in a good position because Jesus makes his way to you. For those who are desperate for restoration, Jesus, the good news is he is here, powerful and gracious to restore. Amen. Last but not least, this third section of miracles. And i got to go because there's another service coming. Y'all ready? (laughs) Woo! In this last section of miracles, we see this third and final understanding of Jesus and his power and his work in restoration. We see his powerful healing. We see restoration to the broken. In verses 18 through 34, We read, while he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. And Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly, the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and he saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went throughout all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on the son of David! And he entered the house. And the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. And then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith it is done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all of the district. And as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. I find it amazing as we moved toward considering this last section of Jesus that Jesus heals disease. In all of history, man had longed to experience healing of infirmity and disease. In Numbers chapter 5, we read in the ceremonial law that the Lord commanded to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or who has a discharge and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp, that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. 
And the people of Israel did so. In the presence of God's holiness, in the place where God dwelled, no defilement could come near. For all of history, people had known as they were plagued with infirmity, with disease, with discharge, and specifically it names here leprosy, discharges, and the dead. The only thing they knew to do was to separate them out. There was nothing offered in the law of how these people could be healed. Yes, the priest could test if they had been healed, but there was nothing that people could do to heal these things. And over and over and over in the law, for instance, like in Leviticus chapter 15, in the ceremonial law, the Lord speaks to Moses and Aaron. He says, when anyone has a discharge from the body, they are not clean. And this is the law of uncleanness. If his body is running with discharge or blocked up, it is unclean. Every bed on which the one, the discharge lies is unclean. Everything on which he sits is unclean. Anyone who touches his bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself. Whoever sits on it shall wash himself because he's unclean. Whoever touches the body of one is unclean. And he goes on and on and on and speaks of how unclean these people are by their infirmities and by their disease, how they have to be separated away from God and others. All of this is preparing us for the day that Jesus arrives on the scene. Do you think that it's coincidence that Jesus makes his way to a leper, to one with a discharge, and to a dead girl? It is no coincidence, friends. Jesus is helping us to understand that in areas where no one in this world can make you clean, when the best of medical systems fail you, <laughs> Jesus can make you clean. Can you imagine how shocking it would have been for a Jewish person who knows all the ceremonial laws to watch Jesus as people are making his way to him and saying, we want you to come and heal a dead girl. And he reaches out to touch her. No, 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 Jesus. You cannot touch a dead girl. You will become unclean. She is unclean. And yet as he touches her, he does not become unclean. She becomes clean. Can you imagine as Jesus makes his way to the leper? No, 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 Jesus, he's a leper. He's saying, I'm unclean. You can't touch him. You will become unclean. And yet he touches him and the leper does not become unclean. Excuse me, Jesus does not become unclean. The leper becomes clean. Can you imagine here in this story, this woman with a discharge for years reaching out to touch the pure and holy son of God no 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 don't touch his garment oh no she's unclean and yet Jesus does not become unclean what happens she becomes clean what a wonderful savior what a powerful God. God with all power 
has given to Jesus authority over all creation, and with his authority and power, he uses it to bring restoration, friends. To bring restoration completely to the broken, sinful lives of those who are willing to completely trust in him. Amen? And what I love is this is available for all. How close? Because I need to close. But this is available for all who trusted him. Here you've got Jarius, who's a leading Jewish man. And then you have this woman who is anonymous. No prestige, no resources. Here you've got a synagogue leader. But then you've got a woman who's been away from worship for a long time. Here you've got somebody who's pleading for his daughter, and you've got somebody else who's pleading for herself. You've got somebody who's been healthy for 12 years, this girl, and then she dies. And then you've got this woman who's been sick for 12 years, and she's longing to live. You've got one who's in public, and you've got one who's in private. Jesus is powerful to restore all who come to him in faith. It doesn't matter where you're coming from or what you're coming with. What matters is, are you coming to him? Are you coming? Because we see for those who come, Jesus has authority over all, and he's willing by his grace to use it for your good. Are you coming to Jesus? Believing him for who he is, trusting him for what he can do, hoping in his promise, and resting even when you don't understand. Father, we pray that you would speak, that you would minister, that you would heal. Lord, in this time of response, I pray, Lord, that you would minister to your people. Oh, Lord, today, right now, today, there are so many here who need your powerful touch in their life, who need your grace. And I am praying, Lord, right now, that people would make their way to you. Oh God, I can't heal, but you can. I can't restore, but you can. I can't forgive, but you can, God. I just long to bring people to you, God. I pray right now that people would just be coming to you. You are the Messiah. You have come to restore. And with your great power and with your great grace, Lord, you offer hope and healing to those who trust you. We come to you, Jesus. We come to you. Church, let's sing and respond to Jesus. There's prayer counselors here at the front. The altar is open. You could come and just kneel and pray. I'm here if you want to come to Jesus for the first time or for the 10,000th time. Just just come right now where you are. Just say, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I believe you. Jesus, I trust you. Jesus, I rest in you. Jesus, would you restore? Would you heal? Would you forgive? Would you bless? When you touch me, Jesus, you don't become unclean, but I become clean. Oh, Jesus, we come longing for your restoration.